Well, I am Dave Scherer. I get to be, for this season, my privilege is to be your interim pastor here in this teaching role. I'm grateful for that and find it very kind and trusting of you to uh, let me serve in this manner, so thank you for that. And this morning, we're going to take on uh, a new subject. We're going to we're going to look at the upper room discourse. That's what smart guys call uh, the teaching that Jesus did in the upper room when he was with his disciples when they enjoyed uh, the Last Supper together. And uh, there's quite a bit of teaching and, and, uh, and a long, beautiful prayer uh, that evening, and it's only in the Gospel of John that this teaching is captured. And John apparently was playing, paying close attention that night, and uh, and so he recorded this for us. I have long treasured these uh, these chapters from about verse uh, eleven and twelve, leading up to the upper room, all the way through uh, chapter seventeen, really. Um, at one point in time, I outlined a book that I wanted to write just over these passages that I thought it was so profound and so important for the believer to have a sense, uh, a grasp of these, not just a, a first-time reading, but a, a deep dive. So we we will still be skipping a stone across the top of these uh, rich texts over the next five weeks as we walk with Jesus towards Resurrection Sunday. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we enjoyed uh, Ash Wednesday together, and uh, that is a traditional that a person would perhaps have a disciplined fast during those 40 days. If you are participating in one of those disciplines, then that means uh, that on Sundays, you're allowed to have a break from that discipline. So if you gave up chocolate, today's your day. You get to have some piece of fudge or something. And uh, and the idea is that every Sunday during the Lenten season is a little Resurrection Sunday. And so it's a, a lovely discipline as we prepare ourselves uh, for that, uh, for Resurrection Sunday. So, uh, we've called this uh, the, the five disconsolate hours on a Thursday evening. These, these may have been... Um, the five worst hours, the, the time from about six o'clock in the evening to, to midnight. Perhaps the five worst hours in history, if, if you aren't counting, at least in the evening, if you aren't counting all the kangaroo courts through the middle of the night, and of course the terrible, the terrible death of Christ, his murder on Friday, this Thursday night is a rough night. The writer and theologian John Calvin said, the other three Gospels show us Christ's body. John's Gospel show us Christ's soul. So we will be diving deep into the person of Christ on this last night. I originally uh, put this illustration in, then I thought I'd take it out, and then I'm sitting here thinking, I guess I'll go ahead and share it anyway, yeah? I don't know, a couple, three weeks ago we were talking about 
the walk to the cross and how some people that we love can be stumbling blocks, can actually be enemies of the cross even though they love us. And my dad, my dad was tough in my early years. My dad was tough kind of for a long time and I kind of threw my dad under the bus in front of you. And um, I wanted to fix that a little bit if I could. In the last three years of dad's life, he came to live with us. And he had gone to Israel had been baptized in the Jordan River, and somewhere in there he came back a changed man. And um, the Lord became um, personal to him. And um, it was real important to me to be reconciled to him. And so uh, mom had already passed away, and so dad came to live with us for the last about three years. And he was still good health, but independently living. And then uh, he got pneumonia uh, at age 89 and, and died, kind of like that. And um, I had an opportunity, my sister and brother, probably because I'm the, the pastor in the family, but they said, well, uh, you need to talk to Dad. You need to, you need to talk to Dad. And uh, the circumstances were that Dad was in the hospital, he was failing, uh, and I don't know if it's insurance or how it works, but the insurance people, the, the hospital people said, we need that bed. Oh, okay. And, and so we need to transfer your dad to hospice. So I had a conversation with the social worker sitting over here, my sister to my left, my brother on a cell phone to my right, and a privilege of saying to dad, all the things that you kind of wanted to say in that moment. Um, things like, I forgive you, Dad, and I trust you forgive me. And you know, He was still wide awake at that point. He had a mask on, so he couldn't say anything, but I could read his eyes and face. And, uh, and I got to say things like, thanks for taking care of my mom. He, he took care of mom for 10 years when she went through Alzheimer's, when he didn't. He was not known. And, uh, and I got to say things like, thanks for, thanks for working hard for the family. Saving for the family. And I got to say, um, Dad, we have to move you to hospice care. And soon, they tell me that you'll be on a morphine drip. And you'll be largely sleeping. And I want to tell you, this is not our last conversation. It feels like our last conversation. But you know it's not, right, Dad? You gave me a hearty nod. I said, we'll talk again in heaven if we don't talk before then. And, uh, and I didn't get to talk to my dad again. And at least now. But in that same spirit, this conversation, excuse me, this conversation that Jesus is having, having with his friends, is the same conversation. It's flipped a little bit in that Jesus is having the conversation and he's about to die. But it's one of those profound moments of last words where you take note, right? Pay attention because these are 
defining moment. You know what? I'm going to take a moment. Just... So, uh, this morning, we will dive deep. We will try and do that um, somewhat, somewhat deliberately because we have the table before. And what that means for us this morning is that if your mind gets distracted, make sure it gets distracted here. And, um, and what that also means is that there will be a benevolence offering this week. Uh, uh, we have a habit here at Applewood of receiving a gift for those who are less fortunate, and so you can put that in the back, uh, along with your other tithes and offerings, as the Lord leads. Maybe you know this picture. That would be the Last Supper. And the painter, uh, Da Vinci, has captured this at just the moment when Christ says, um, one of you will betray me. And this is what he thinks is the uh, Polaroid picture of that moment as the disciples begin to talk amongst themselves and talk about um, how that could possibly be true, that someone among their peers would betray the Master. So this story, this upper room experience has been inspiring artists and playwrights filmmakers and poets uh, since it happened 2,000 years ago. It is one of those moments in history. I find it interesting that the last recorded teachings of Jesus are with his private disciples. It's not a public teaching. It's a private teaching. And Jesus' private teaching was usually a little bit different than his public teaching. Publicly, he often spoke in parable in story form, and the public was largely confused. Even when he did preach um, kind of straight up to them, like in the Sermon on the Mount, that was still kind of hard to take too. Uh, you know, if somebody slaps you, uh, let them slap you again. Really? Uh, so so the, the public heard sort of the general teachings of Jesus, but the disciples heard some of the, the deeper uh, the deeper wonderings of Christ. And so, so we're going to be drawn in. The reason I mention that is because here we are as believers, as though we are in the room with him, hearing him teach us on his last night, just as any other believer of that day might have been ushered into this private time of teaching. And so it's really a wonderful privilege for us that John has done, that he has invited us right to the table with him. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. In order for us to... Well, let me just say one more thing. That, that upper room experience, that was not your average dinner cocktail event. Um, on the mind of Christ is the fact that he will soon be betrayed. On the mind of Christ is that he will soon uh, face his final temptation in the garden of Gethsemane. On the mind of Christ is the fact that he will soon be beaten beyond res re recognition and crucified most horribly. So all of this is on his mind. And I think it's helpful for us to understand that this is indeed a sober evening. 
Jesus' heart is quite broken. I'm guessing here he's, he's near tears most of the evening. So it wouldn't have been unusual for the disciples to pick up that something, something's going on. Something's happening here that I, I can't quite figure out. And, and uh, they actually saw it some weeks before when Jesus left Galilee and on the Jericho Road. The disciples said that he set his face uh, like a flint for Jerusalem and they were actually a little bit afraid and they walked behind him because this guy was on a mission. He knew what he was doing. So in order for us to truly understand what's going on on this night when Jesus was betrayed and when he established uh, the Eucharist, the blessing, the gift of his holy table, um, there's a lot going on. Let's go ahead and just kind of take a look at a map for a second. Uh, and, and, and chase the path to the upper room. So, uh, this evening here in the upper room, uh, we're gonna be down here in Jerusalem, uh, in the south part of the city, uh, uh northwest. Here's the Kidron Valley here to, uh, the west, the Mount of Olives. You'd have to go down through this valley and up to the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane, where he prayed. And Bethany, where we will actually start our story is about two or three miles, maybe not even, uh, a walk uh, from Jerusalem. And, and Jesus was staying there uh, during Holy Week. So he would make the trip into Jerusalem, do some of his teaching, and then make his way home to Bethany where he was staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and the disciples. And, and that's where he would rest up for Holy Week. And so uh, our story will start here in Bethany and he makes his journey ultimately to the upper room and then finally up here to Golgotha and the cross and the empty tomb just outside the city walls. Uh, it's, it's not a big city. This is a, a, about a mile and this is about a half a mile. So you can walk a half a mile in, I don't know, seven to ten minutes. Pretty easy. That's an easy walk. Um, I don't know if anybody has easy walks anymore. I don't know if that actually exists. Uh, but um, this journey that Jesus is going to take on the night that he's betrayed is going to take him back and forth from Gethsemane down to the house of Caiaphas and to where um, Pilate and Antipas, the king, is, and he's just going to bounce around all over the place in here during the night of his betrayal and before he faces the cross. So, so this is what lies in front of him. This is the path that he is on. And uh, it starts um, the upper room experience and the history and the, the passion of it all starts a little bit earlier than that. Open your Bibles with me. And let's just page through this a little bit in John. Turn to chapter 11 with me. Chapter 11 is uh, when we read about the, the account of Lazarus' death. And Lazarus, you remember, lived in Bethany to the west of Jerusalem. And Lazarus, his friend, ostensibly his, his cousin, um, got sick. Jesus stalled for a little while, got there late. Martha was pretty hacked at him for not getting there on time. If you'd have only been here on time, Lazarus would still be alive. And Jesus uh, 
utters those amazing words, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will never die. And then he asks that poignant question to Martha, do you believe? What do you think about that? So Lazarus dies, and then Jesus calls into eternity and beckons him out. Turns out that becomes quite a famous event. Huh. And the entire world of, of Jerusalem and the extended Jerusalem is a buzz with this because they've met Lazarus, they see Lazarus, they've seen him, they've touched him, and they know this story. And so it's created a buzz within Jerusalem as well. In fact, the Pharisees have said, okay, now we've got to kill Lazarus and Jesus because this story is getting out of hand. So it's a fascinating prelude to the drama of the upper room because all sorts of people have gone crazy. In fact, you'll see at the end of, um, where'd it go? Uh, yeah, somewhere in here we have a triumphant entry. Yeah, somewhere. And, and so the people go crazy. It's in 12. <laughs> here it is. And, and, um, there's another event in Bethany that, that I want us to also stall over, and this would be um, probably on a, on a Saturday night, the week of his death. Turn with me to chapter 12. And the first uh, eight verses or so of chapter 12 tell us about an anointing that happens upon Jesus by a loved one. It says, I have to read it off my pages here, six days before the Passover, so that would be on Saturday if... Uh, the 14th of Nisan, that's the month, fell on a Friday. So Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. We're not sure how much, for, how much before. Some weeks before. Could have, been, have been, could have even been months before, but in my mind it feels like not that long before. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at him, with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to portray Jesus, said, why, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor will all, you will always have, but you do not always have me. So uh, this anointing was in anticipation of the fact that Jesus would soon die and would not get a proper anointing after his death, before he was buried. And so it is, um, it is a symbolic week of uh, uh, amazing foreshadowing of what is about to happen in the upper room and then ultimately at Golgotha. So we see that, and isn't it interesting? We see two very different responses to Jesus that night. Mary, who takes perhaps her entire inheritance uh, in, a little, in a little jar and breaks it over Jesus and anoints him in a lavish act of worship, worship. and Judas is mad because he can't get his hands on some of that money. And all of this is happening the night, the, the week that Jesus is facing his passion. 
Then there's the triumphant entry, as we said, in chapter 12, and all the people come out, and we discover in that passage, we won't put it up on the board, but in that passage it says, Behold, the king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And then later the, the Pharisees say, Can you see that we are gaining nothing? The world has gone after him. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of the world. And, and what we hear is that the hour has come. So now in chapter 12 of John, Jesus is talking to them and he says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he goes on to say, whoever loses his life, whoever hates his life in this world, remember remember our easel up here, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, then he must follow me. So, the hour has come. So I'm not great at English. Okay, I'm, I'm not great at English. But this is the present perfect tense. Are there English teachers here? I'm about to wreck this, so I'm sorry. But as I understand it, the present perfect tense is kind of an ongoing kind of uh, tense in the use of that verb, the verb. And so it's not just the hour has come, done, but the hour has come, the hour remains, the hour, the hour will continue to remain. I am entering into my kingdom right now, and that kingdom will remain. When he says the hour has come, he's not talking about his death per se, although that's the doorway. He's talking about his victory. He's talking about the plan of God that's been in place since the beginning of time. And he's talking about the fact that it's about to be realized right here, right now. We are going to create the door for all of humanity to enter into and to become the living, breathing, eternal, praising kingdom of God. And so it's everything that the Trinity ever thought of was this moment to redeem the lost image bearer. So it's quite a moment course. And the hour has come. And so you think to yourself, now this is the moment then. Jesus gets to teach into this moment and, and to help us understand what it is that the kingdom is supposed to look like. So I'm about to establish the doorway, the gate, because Jesus said, I am the gate, right? I am the gate. I'm going to be the gate. I am the doorway into the kingdom of God. Believe in me. Enter through that narrow gate. And so then you say to yourself, well, what does that look like? What does that kingdom citizen look like? How do they carry themselves? What is their character? Well, their character is like Christ. And so Jesus now gives us a lesson in the character of Christ, in his own character. He gives us a lesson uh, a foot-washing 101, a lesson in humility. So again, it's best to understand this with a little bit of background. If you go to Luke chapter 22 and you read there, on the way to the upper room, even, the disciples are talking and they're talking about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. I'm thinking Jesus is going, have you not learned anything? We're about to have our last supper and you're still yammering about this? 
And he's listening to this, he's walking, and they get to the upper room, and they get around the table, and Jesus says, it's time for a lesson. I'm going to act this one out for you. I'm going to show you what this looks like, what it means to be the humble servant. So you might have some misconceptions. You might have been thinking that there was a table, but it was more like this, where the disciples would have been around a low table, um, reclining. They would eat with their right hand. They would um, hold themselves with their left. Uh, you can see that in this sort of personal close-up setting, um, having clean feet would probably be a good idea. Um, but it was more symbolic than that. The idea of having your feet washed upon entering a home was an act of service and humility on the part of the host. And so the lowest of the lowest servants would wash the feet of the guests as they entered in because the feet, it, it's dirty in the first century. And, uh, and so the lowest servant would wash because feet in the Middle East it are are um, unclean, and so you you wouldn't you wouldn't touch feet. Remember when George Bush was on the podium one time and uh, facing reporters in Iraq, and someone stood up and threw a shoe at him. Uh, that was that was the an act of absolute disgrace that you would throw something that was so foul as a shoe, uh, something that had touched a foot. This is ingrained in the culture of the Middle East. It's lost on us. So that when we do a foot washing service, it's a, it's a little uncomfortable, but y'all's feet's pretty clean. So that's probably not as big an issue as it was for them. So, so there's quite a bit going on in, in this picture. John, Jesus in the middle on, on this side at the head of the table. John ostensibly to his right and, and we know that out of the context of the story. Uh, to his right sits John, his beloved disciple. Uh, to his left sits Judas Iscariot. And we know that because Jesus is able to dip a piece of bread and hand it to him. So John to his right, Jesus says, I'm about to be betrayed. Peter, ostensibly at the top on the right, leans back to John and says to John, ask him who it is. Ask him who it is. And John then leans back into the bosom of Jesus and says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one to whom I'm about to give this piece of bread. And he dips the bread and hands it to his left, to Judas, also at the head of the table. So that's a little bit, a little bit ahead of us. But can you, can you see the moment? Can you see what they're all leading up to? This intimate personal setting where they're enjoying this dinner together, knowing, uh, knowing that there is a betrayer in their midst. So, let's back it up one more time because I want to talk about this foot washing experience in John chapter 13. Let's just read through this quickly and then I have a, uh, a few things that I want to share with you just before we uh, break for the table. So in John chapter 13, this is where the story of the foot washing uh, is recounted, as I say, in the only place in the, in the scriptures, in the Gospels. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back from God, rose from supper and... So I want to stop here. Because if I had written this story, it would have been different. Jesus, knowing that he was from God and that he was going back to God, that he was equal with God, stood up at the table and showed himself in all his glory. He became blinding light. The angels of the heavens broke out singing, and all the world knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the king predicted. That's a pretty good story. That is not the story. How odd. Probably good I didn't get to finish that sentence. Because something powerful happened next. No, Jesus, knowing all this, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And then to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he said to Simon Peter, who is with... or. He came to Simon Peter, who was with him, and he said to him, Lord, do you, you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand, but afterwards you will. And then jumping down to verse 12, and said, he said, when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes, put on his clothes, returned to his place, and, do you under, and he said, do you understand what I have done for you? So, what I am taking from this, from the moments that I had in the last event with my dad and other moments with Susan and I as we made our way through life, it, it feels to me that the most impressive lessons of life, of life in Christ, come directly from the Father in the midst of the crucible of relentless life. It doesn't usually come in moments of hilarity and joy. It happens in these crucibles, in these moments. That is when the impressive lessons of life in Christ seem to find a deep place in my heart. And so we ought not to, we ought not to hate them, the hard moments. We ought not to shake our fist and say, why God, why? A better question is what? How? How can I respond? What do you want me to know? So, isn't this fascinating that Jesus takes off his clothes, he's at the table, he's at the head of the table, he's at the center of the table. He is the host, he is the important one. He takes off his outer garment and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Do you remember the passage in Philippians, we read it a couple weeks ago, where it says that he left his throne... And he became, and he humbled himself, becoming like a man, becoming like a human, and taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself. This is the story that Paul is thinking of right here, right now. The theologians call that the kenosis passage. K-E-N-O-S-I-S, the emptying passage. 
People think about it all the time. Oh, this is hard. What did Jesus give up? Did Jesus quit being God? Was he still God? This passage that we're going through right now, it's demonstrating exactly what that means. He is stepping down from not his position as host. He's going to put his clothes back on and go back to host. He's not giving up his, his status. For a moment, he's giving up his privilege. He continues to be the host. He continues to be the center of attention. That never stops. He has all the authority of the host in that evening. But he gives up the privilege of that and serves others. And in so doing, he begins to create a lesson plan for us. So, I want to get to the table, so I'm going to um, close up shop here. And uh, what that means is we're going to come back to four more pages. <laughs> but I want, to, uh, I, want to, I want to focus on one verse at the end here. And, uh, and that's chapter 13, verse 12. When he says, do you understand the significance of what I have done? He finishes washing their feet puts his clothes back on, takes his place at the head of the table, reestablishes his place of privilege and says, do you get it? Do you see what I have done? Do you see that the servant is the place of honor in the kingdom of God? that I can serve you and now as I leave you you too can serve others. So God is asking that question of us this morning. He's asking us how deeply do we remember the night that He was betrayed and the night that He showed us how true authority is manifest in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ, as we serve one another in His name. Pray with me as we prepare for communion. So indeed, Lord, these are moments of profound worship. What you have set aside for us now is not a, not a casual act of worship. It is indeed a sacred moment. Father, the table, the sacrament of communion, we hold dear. Because it is the embodiment of the lesson plan that your son acted out for us on the night that he was betrayed. And then later that same evening, he instituted this celebration that we might never forget, not only our Christ who is coming again, but that we might never forget that it is the humble who are exalted. It is the man and woman willing to die who will truly live. And so, Father, we receive this communion table now as an act of worship to your Son. In Jesus' name. So the night that Jesus was betrayed, as we've been speaking, a little bit later in that same evening, you'll remember that Jesus 
uh, took the bread first. And it says, after, oh my gosh, excuse me. That's not good. After giving thanks, he took the bread and broke it. And then again, using a living word picture, he said, this is my body. My body will soon be broken for you and for all who would believe. He said, take this and eat. I want to abide in you. I want you to abide in me. Again, later that same evening, he took the cup and shared with the disciples that as his blood is being poured out, that a new covenant, a new covenant is being formed. A covenant that allows us to enter clean and washed, just as the disciples' feet were. Clean and washed before the ancient of days. And so, Father, we are grateful for this table. We are grateful this morning that you have broken through into our life to present to us the reminder day by day that you have full authority and that your son has died. And we remember, Lord, even your son's admonition to do this as often as we do this, remembering Jesus Christ until he comes. Our habit here at Applewood is to practice what is called an open table. It is the covenant way. And all who are true believers are welcome to this table. And that is an opportunity for you to look deep within and to imagine yourself before the table with Christ and say, Lord, am I yours? Have I yielded all? And so those who find themselves at that place, you're welcome at this table. Typically we've allowed for two rows uh, to come forward as you're you're willing, and and you don't have to this morning. It's It's as the Lord leads you. And so um, uh, we'll take a moment, and then as you're welcome, and then uh, there's some gluten-free here as well for those of us that, that find that important. So again, Father, thank you for this meal. In Jesus' name.